Welcome to the Shadow of the Valley, the show that tracks the troubling trends of technology today through contemplative conversations with actors of conscience. I'm your host, Tal Leeds, your guide through the digital darkness we dare not speak. Join me as we plumb the depths and seek the roots of post-human dilemmas. Together we'll explore key concepts, seek clear insight, and cut through the distractions to find solutions to some of our toughest challenges. This week's guest is Dr. Heather Barfield. Dr. Barfield's award-winning, critically acclaimed work as a performer, director, producer, and writer combines digital and analog media. Her recent works explore the ethics of digital privacy. And so what's happening, of course, is this, you know, the fourth wall, fine. But what I'm trying to do when talking about viscerality, the whole point of privacy settings in that production itself was that I wanted people to be made aware of how tenuous our private lives are when we start using our computers, cell phones, and start plugging in our bank account information, our birthday, our lunches, our children, everything and anything is online. Together we'll dive into her work, how she came up with her ideas, and what she learned along the way. It's time to step into the dark, so let's begin. Even before his latest set of privacy woes, Facebook founder and CEO Mark Zuckerberg has had a different policy that has been fairly controversial. He enforces a rule that only allows real people to use their real names to maintain a single Facebook profile. In other words, no fake profiles, no pseudonyms, and no profiles that are only intended for one audience and not another. The way he puts it, having two identities for yourself is an example of a lack of integrity. Now, I take issue with that statement. I simply don't buy into Zuckerberg's theory of a singular identity, nor would Irving Goffman, who is the psychologist who wrote The Presentation of Self in Everyday Life. According to Goffman, whenever we contact other people, we attempt to control or guide the impressions that others make of us by changing or fixing our setting, our appearance, our manner, in other words, we put on a social mask or a persona. We naturally present ourselves in a sort of daily theatrical performance. Sometimes we wear them more lightly than in others, but regardless, we all have slightly different personas for different social situations. I think this is what made the early internet exciting, the freedom from the ordinary identity that used to happen when you go online. You could test out different ideas, attitudes, gender presentations, and points of view for yourself without judgment or consequence. And okay, sure, if you wanted to have a sort of site where you presented your everyday self to your friends, and great, you know, go ahead and put that up for all to see. It's when you force people to blend the everyday social self with the ideal, wild, experimental selves, or even the minor selves that get presented to friends or coworkers that I think things start going wrong. When you do that, the personas you wear become you. It's like Zuckerberg is almost encouraging that conflation and the mental illness and the political divisions that come with such policies. Follow me on this for a moment, if you will. If you are being encouraged to tie your online persona with your real identity, how many steps does it take before you start believing the person I am online is really me. As any actor can tell, you can give you a real high to perform on stage or screen as some sort of mythical character. But imagine the toll it would take on you having to repeat the same performance day after day after day. Not only would you become a complete narcissist, which is sadly often the case these days, but you'd be trapping yourself in a perfect prison of your own design, needing another hit of that dopamine every time your post got liked or shared or go viral or whatever, every time you got applause. Even the best actors need to put their characters away at some point just to stay sane. It's also why they hate being typecast. This is exactly where I think the trap of social media gets so insidious. It's basically using psychological trips to keep us typecast 
in the personalities they reinforce with dopamine hits every time you get a like or a retweet. When you stay the same, when you remain stuck in one kind of personality, then they can send you more and more and more targeted ads and optimize their algorithms to keep you glued to the screen and maximize their profits. That's also the problem with data extraction on the net. When you're aware of the stark consequences that can result from exploring the socially riskier parts of your personality, you're left with a pretty bad situation. Either you're marked for life as an untrustworthy dissident, as they're planning to do in China with their social credit score system, or you get stuck in an unsatisfying personality like a 1950s housewife or a typecast actor. Sure, okay, experimenting with personality in an anonymous way isn't always good. The mask that can transport us to fantasy realms in the theater can also make bank robbers anonymous. But we need it anyways, because the same anonymity that protects the criminal can also protect the noble whistleblower or the activist. Russian Twitter bots, fake Facebook groups, fake like generators, the alt-right, I get it. These things are all pretty bad. They're scary things that mess with our sense of reality, and they have very serious consequences. But there have always been bullies, and there have always been fakes. And I think it's really too late to put the genie back in the bottle at this point. Personally, I think we'd be better off learning to look at social media as theater, the way that our guest Heather Barfield does. When we understand that the need to communicate is bound up with the need to play and present oneself to the world, we can discern the insights we'll need to wield network technologies more humanely. In this episode, our guest is Dr. Heather Barfield. Dr. Heather Barfield is an Associate Artistic and Development Director at the Vortex Theater in Austin, Texas, and Adjunct Professor of Performance and Theater History slash Criticism at Austin Community College. She received her PhD in Performance as a Public Practice from the University of Texas at Austin. Her 2016 production, Privacy Settings, A Promethean Tale, had Barfield and her cast of devised theater makers exploring the complex topics of whistleblowers, digital privacy, and civil liberties alongside audience immersive interaction. She's also a board member of the EFF Austin, the local branch of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, an independent nonprofit civil liberties organization concerned with emerging frontiers where technology meets society. Dr. Barfield, thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Um, so I want to start off asking a bit about your work and, um, and the topics that you explore, uh, specifically privacy. Why don't you tell us a little bit about, um, why you felt that that was a good, um, that the theater was a good venue to explore privacy in particular particularly theater? Well, theater is my medium. That's my art. That's what I studied. That's what I trained. So there's that. Um, theater is also a place where public meets the private in the most visceral way. You have an audience, most of whom are probably strangers to one another, but they're all witnessing a shared experience together. Um, they are having feelings manifest while they're seated together, sometimes scary, sometimes sad, sometimes happy. And so I find it really fascinating that one can have emotional experiences with strangers in, uh, in a space mm -hmm. together. And, and, how, and how audiences have to simultaneously be negotiating in an internalized way how they're going to respond to this live ephemeral you know constantly rolling process of evaluating <laughs> story on stage mm -hmm. and how you know do they empathize do they not empathize how do they make those decisions um, on the spot and 
you know, we go to like a movie theater where there's a flat screen and you're sitting in there in the darkness and everyone's staring at one thing. And yes, indeed, in a lot of proscenium style theaters is what you have, but what we have here at the Vortex in particular is you've got uh, audience on two sides and we, you know, we sort of have this strange little kind of, uh, we call it the, the corner, we have sort of, sort of this corner angle in the middle of the space and you will always be seeing other audience members unless we transform the space into a different shape, which we've done before. Uh -huh. But there is an interactivity of of the audience with what's happening in the space that I find to be really uh, interesting and generative as an artist and as somebody who is curious about how human beings react, not just to each other, but to their circumstances, their environment, their, um, their own life stories, um, in histories and it's it's a kind of a wonderful tapestry in the theater for me. And again, I'm a geeky academic, so I can go on and on and on about this. I'm <laughs> well, not the only one that believes in sort of the quote unquote wonder of the theater. I mean, Joel Dolan calls it the utopian performative. Yeah, uh, well, I, I do want to go there a little bit because theater seems to be having a bit of a moment right now. Um, is it though? Is it? <laughs> well, it seems to be. I mean, how be. old is theater? Like, is it? It's it's true, but but there seems to be some way that theater is serving right now to um, explore these complex ideas in a way that other mediums are not quite doing in the same way. And examples would be, you know, anything from what's happened around Hamilton to uh, 1984, that production on Broadway or um, the production of Julius Caesar, wh where he was depicted as Donald Trump and all the reactions that came out of that. It seems to have some sort of perhaps viscerality to it that is um, perhaps a novel in this digitized age. And I wonder what you, what you make of that, whether you agree with that assessment, um, why or why not. Okay, so I'm gonna first talk from like the now, okay? Yeah, and yeah. I'm just gonna forget about theater history for a minute because sure. there are a lot of arguments that I could present around. People have always participated in the theater. Yeah. You know, what you're insinuating is that, oh, there's more participation. There's more sort of interactivity with the actors. That's happened before, okay? And uh -huh. just because we're using a new tool to implement that sort of interactivity, it's interesting and it's, you, you, but at the heartbeat of it all, it's still to connect to each other as human yeah. beings. It's still to find shared stories and shared conversations. Mm -hmm. It's the need that I feel, that urge to make meaning of our lives. Okay. Theater is a venue where we make meaning of our lives, in my opinion. Now, when we start I'm to sorry, incorporate- uh, more, mm -hmm. so, more so than say cinema, more so than than other uh, Oh, I don't like media. that argument. I'm saying like, I'm a theater practitioner. Yeah. I'm not going to be like, our flag is bigger than your flag as uh -huh. artists because I think that that's- It's just a different flag. I think that it, it's a prism. It, there's yeah. all sorts of perspectives. There's a rainbow color <laughs> of art. Yeah. And that's my medium. And yeah. I'm passionate about my medium and I'm passionate about my, um, my ability to translate how I see the world and how the artists I work with see the world and how um, we can generate both um, conflict on the stage to help us problem solve some of the problems that we're facing right now through storytelling. Yeah. It's all about storytelling in the end. Now, some people argue again that that's not the case either. Again, mm -hmm. We are at, I think if we're going to go to this, like we're at an interesting time for the theater, it would be in the sense that people are able to play and tinker and hack theater. That's what I called privacy settings. Uh -huh. I said that I was hacking theater in a way and I was working with these other artists. And in the sense that like, I am taking these traditional forms, right? So you have audience seated, quiet, paying, and that, by the way, is not, is only more of a 20th century thing that we're quiet and seated there with our little proper selves in the seat. But that, you know, putting 
allowing audience members to use their cell phones in the middle of a performance right. and getting phone calls, like like encouraging them to receive a phone call right. in the middle of a performance. And Wh then which are things that you've done in privacy settings. In privacy settings. settings. Yeah. And then they receive the call, and it's one of my actors uh, reciting to them the Fourth Amendment. And they basically demand this person in the audience listening on their phone stand up in front of everybody in the audience and repeat the Fourth Amendment out loud. And then that's wow, done in succession. Yeah. There's repeated moments of that so that it builds that tension. Mm -hmm. And so what's happening, of course, is you know, you're breaking the fourth wall, fine. But what I'm trying to do when we talk about viscerality, the whole point of privacy settings and that production in itself was that I wanted people to be made aware of how tenuous our private lives are when we start using our uh, computers, cell phones, and start plugging in our bank account information, our birth date, our lunches, our children, everything and anything is online. Now at first, you know, in my own research and my own fascination with this, it was kind of about the, you know, this, oh, the uh, Snowden, right? So, right. so let me back up. Yeah, the back whole up, thing yeah. is that like the story that I had already been in the digital sort of curiosities. Yeah. I was afraid of Facebook phenomena, the Friendster, the uh, what was the other one, um, uh, the uh, MySpace. Like yeah. I was like, what is th what? Why are people talking about themselves? Mm -hmm. Why I don't want anybody to know my <laughs> my thing. And so I would make up fake names just yeah. to pretend. And I found that as a great way to characterize yeah. myself and to and to like put on characters to to an avatar. Right? Yeah. I was like, oh, this is like Avatar Land. Right. So but, you, you looked at it in a theatrical way. Oh my God. You know? Why would I tell anybody anything <laughs> about myself online in a right. public forum? Right. Even somebody like you, who I don't even, I know I'm friendly with, but I'm like, I don't need Tal to know, like, you know, my favorite song. Yeah. Like, what's the point of that? Yeah. And then, you know, as I started to, then Snowden came out, and then I was like, oh, this is it. And then I started kind of connecting the dots that Snowden is a modern day Prometheus. Mm. And then I thought I was the brilliant person that came up with this idea, but there are very brilliant people <laughs> in this world and her name is Rebecca Solnit. Yeah. And Rebecca wrote an article about him being the modern Prometheus. And that's when I knew, I was like, that's it. I yeah. gotta work on this. Yeah. So I took about two years translating Prometheus Bound as best I could to a modern uh, kind of twist. Yeah. And all of it related to the questions of whether or not it is ethical and okay for um, government sources or uh, any nefarious entities out there <laughs> yeah. to be collecting our information to use either against us or sometimes in the case for us, just depends on how that information is manipulated. Right. And then I'm going to say this other thing, um, and interrupt me anytime. I told you no, I'll go great. on and you're, on and on. You're doing so, great. So what can happen too is that I realized when I was working on, on privacy settings that it's about data. It's yeah. not really about the NSA. It's not really about, I mean, it is, you know, it, it is sort of about like, oh, no, we have a Fourth Amendment right not to have, you know, our emails read. And, but these private corporations are already doing that. Right. And well, they've been doing quote, it forever now, you know? Yeah, there's that quote that da data is the new oil, right? Um, yes, it is. Yeah. Yes, it is. And so my argument on all of that was, how come I'm not making money off of my own data? <laughs> Yeah. As an artist, no, I'm like, great, cut me and fine. You can take my data, fine. <laughs> but see, we sign all of these clickbait right. things, right? So terms and agreements, which are letters that are tinier than an ant, that right. you're expected to read, pages and pages and pages no of it, does. which nobody does. And so you sign it. And why does nobody do that? Huh, I don't know, because we're working every day. <laughs> and because now we're dependent on that technology to get us through the day. Right. Everything it's we do now. It's unreasonable to expect that. It's absolutely. Yeah unreasonable to expect us to do that. It would take an entire work week. There was an article posted a couple years ago. It would take a 40-hour work week for you to like read word for word and then comprehend 
all of that information on those clickbait things, oh, oh, click wrap, not clickbait, but click wrap. Um, that's what uh, my lawyer friend um, who helped me on privacy settings told me that's what's called. Because we had to do that for my show, yeah. right? Yeah. And as sort of like a, a comment on it. Right. Like we had a, a sort of ridiculous thing <laughs> that people had to sign. Right. And some of it was actually true and valid because we were calling you people, were calling people and yes. we also kind of interrogated people right. and and we did our own data processing in the second half of the show we split the audience up according to data sets that we created yeah. some of it arbitrary some not so and the audience was always under surveillance the whole time uh -huh. so back to this viscerality of theater yes I'm like, that's exactly where yes, go. yes that was what my intention was yes. was that i was hoping by forcing them to be hyper aware of this is the theater, yes, but you're under watch, you're under surveillance, you're being monitored, and your actions make a difference right. in how you come out of the situation. Right, I mean, and, and my, my point <laughs> being that like, I don't know of any other medium that can accomplish those things in such an efficient and beautiful manner. Right, I mean, in a way that's, I, I mean, I, again, I'm a theater maker, and that's yeah. what I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but there are all kinds of people doing strange things with VR sure. and um, augmented reality. and um, But I, I'm, a, I'm a champion for live performance. Yeah. Now, that can also be live performance art or some, some kind of interactivity, breath to breath, smell to smell. Yeah. Um, bodies in space and time. And again, and, and that's, that's exactly, just me. There's a lot, I know theater makers that kind of would argue against the liveness of theater and sort of the, yes. the canonization of liveness, that yes. it becomes the be-all of, of everything. And, and I, I think what you're, what you're touching on is what I wanted to just, you know, explore a little bit more, which is the, the fact that theater offers the audience uh, precisely all the things that the digital cannot provide in the sense that the digital is very bad at providing things like smell or taste or touch uh, or any of the you know many senses in between right that that make up our you know it's we actually have more than five senses right we have like the experts are saying it's somewhere, somewhere in the 20s or something depending on who you ask um, but they're all these combinations of senses that help us make sense of the world and um, and put it in some kind of order. But when we're doing something that's digital, where even right now as our audience is listening to this recording, there it's it's a compression of the of the actual thing. So like the difference between what you would hear live if you were here sitting in this you know in this theater with us right now is uh, a different sound packet with different contexts um, that would register in your brain differently than just you listening to this interview in your car or wherever right now. Maybe. Hold but on. I'm not going to valorize theater uh -huh. because there are plenty of people that hate <laughs> I'm theater. I'm trying to get you to valorize theater. I know you are, and I'm resisting. And oh, yeah. the reason why I'm resisting is yeah. because there's a lot of reasons why people don't come to the theater or can't come to the theater uh -huh. or don't have the privilege to come to the theater, uh -huh. right? So in some ways, the digital format is the only way people can actually participate. In fact, there's a couple of websites out there that, like HowlRound, is, has been doing live streaming of theater. Interesting. I mean, there's places in rural communities that may just love Jesus Christ Superstar, <laughs> but like they don't have a quality theater in order to experience right. it. And, and so, yeah. yeah, so like the best thing they got is perhaps a live streaming of this musical or the soundtrack to it or something like that. So, um, to, and 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 by the way, I'm not just a theater person. I'm a performance studies scholar, which right, means okay. that everything around me becomes performative, and everything around me becomes um, some kind of staging of something else. Interesting. Okay, so yeah. I see the world always as bodies in a particular space and time, costumed for what is appropriate or sometimes inappropriate, which is fascinating as well. Like what happens when somebody is dressed for, for, for summer in the winter? Right. It becomes a really interesting you know, conversation. So like 
one of the one of the things that I think happens is that there's and again, I'm not I haven't written extensively on this. There's lots of scholars who have, but there's this this sense that theater makers are like theater is the only place where you can feel yeah. like what it means to be human yeah. or what it means to be like face to face and stuff. And I get it. Mm. And I, and yeah, I kind of agree. <laughs> but I also think that let's ask ourselves, is it possible to have it in other means? Mm -hmm. If anything, because I'm not necessarily interested in only making theater. I mean, yeah, that's my lifeblood. That's how I make my, my how I survive. Like, yeah. like I get funding through arts. I mean, there's a whole capitalist thing that we can go on about theater and money and business, et cetera. I'll set that there for just a minute. <laughs> but but yeah. that, um, that we, I think, if we're going to go back to this digital conversation, I think we're at a really interesting time where we can explore, can we smell in virtual reality? I mean, I know that there's a couple of interesting things that are happening in the body hacking world around cha you know, augmented vision in your eyeballs and like mm. what can you put stuff in your nose right, to smell yeah. things depending on what, you know, so there's all kinds of neat things. We don't know what the human body is going to be like in the next hundred years. That's what a lot of futurists are talking about sure. right now. And so what does that do for the actor? If my uh -huh. body is the instrument, right? Well, what if everybody's body could become the instrument and then they, they become hyper aware of their own sort of perf the, their own performative nature, you know, and then yeah. and making making the stories as they happen in their daily lives. Yeah. You know, you've got immersive theaters, you know, taking people out of the seats, digital theater, you know, uh, interacting with live tweets on stage and uh, cell phones, drones, all these things that people are using to kind of incorporate, quote unquote, digital and tech in their shows. In my mind, all of it leads to one basic desire, and that is to communicate. Uh -huh. And people just wanting <laughs> to yeah. find a means to see or find some way yeah. to make what's in my head and my heart yeah. understood by you. Right. By yeah. any means possible. Yeah. Um, now, that's just step one. Yeah. Step two is comprehension, and you could go further, and you'd say compassion, empathy, and, you know, I could tell my story over and over and over again, but if it doesn't resonate with, with you, or you don't feel that you connect with it in some way, okay, well then, does that mean I'm failing? Does that mean sure. that it's a failure, that I don't connect with you? Right. But as an artist, I have all kinds of stories that I want to tell mm -hmm. that are actually really vulnerable stories mm -hmm. about my life and about some of the things that I've experienced as a means for me to heal. For mm -hmm. me, it's kind of a healing thing. Interesting. Um, and even privacy settings was sort of a healing thing. It was a way for me to make sense of what I think is absolutely ethically, morally, constitutionally vile. Well, yeah, something that, that <laughs> something that really struck me about the production when I saw it uh, was the fact that here you are, um, discussing a topic that clearly is frightening and, um, you know, fear-inducing with a technology that seems to be so associated with it. And yet, so much of the, you know, so much of the, of the interesting um, parts of the, so much of what made it interesting was that you used that very technology to tell the story. Um, that is true. And again, it's my way of trying to understand these things. Because some people out there think that all this stuff is great. Uh -huh. You talk to anybody in the infosec, you know, security industry. Right. Uh, 
they'll be all about it, about using this stuff and yeah. about using data to um, exploit people and their vulnerabilities or their habits or their choices for profit. Right. And Well, and there's also like people who are techno technological solutionists, you know, who mm -hmm. will say, well, okay, maybe it sucks now, but um, you know, we'll we'll find another tech fix for it and that'll that'll solve that. I think that part of my issue really is that what that that this is not in the hands of enough people and enough diverse people. Uh-huh. Okay, it's it's not democratized. And and yeah. I don't even know if I'm a huge fan of democracy. I'm still trying I'm still <laughs> trying to figure out what uh -huh. democracy is for me these days. Yeah. Um, but uh I think that there definitely not there aren't enough people of color in tech, women yeah. in tech. There is not enough diversity of voices, visions and ideas and ideals to make this technology um, a a kind of humanizing force. If you, I don't know, maybe that's not the right phrasing, but I, but maybe they don't need to be. I don't know. Like we're, yeah. I think that we're at a really confusing time. Right. What I do know is that uh, people don't calm down enough, <laughs> <laughs> and that people may be communicating in their devices back and forth, mm -hmm. but they're not reciprocating with contemplation about what they're reading or what people are reacting, right? They're reacting to what they're reading online or in a tweet or something instead of like taking a moment to be like, is this really what I mean to say? Right. Is this really how to go about um, getting my message across through, these, through this tool? And like any tool, like a knife, a knife can be used to, you know, slice delicious sushi, or it can right. stab <laughs> you in the heart, you know, yeah. to go to extremes. So using the tech as tools, which is what I was trying to do, but for the benefit of both engaging audience members and in a very sort of literally hands-on way, you yeah. know, because their cell phones are in their hands and it's their device, it's their little computer that they're interacting with, but that device then becomes a tool of, for use in the theater, right. in the particular production. Right. So I basically hijacked and hacked their phones for theater, right. for the use in my show. Right. You know, and so it's, and, and I don't even think, I'm not, again, I'm very humble. I don't think I'm all that brilliant in what I'm doing. I think that with more funding and more people and more diverse voices, we can go much further in that kind of exploration and using these tools. But will they really be effective in the end? Is that, you know, is that really, like, Again, let's go back to this. What is what is the main question you have? What is the main problem? And when I say problem, I mean sort of like a theoretical like mm. thought experiment problem that you're sort of pursuing in like these interviews and in these conversations. What is what is it that's invigorating you? Are you turning it back on me now? <laughs> well, I'm doing that yeah. just so that I can yeah. figure out how to explore this idea of using tech as a tool as rather than yeah, well, uh, so I mean, the, it's we're exploring exactly that complexity. I I'm enjoying hearing you talk about the complexity because I think part of our problem is how oversimplified this becomes, mm. and how when the complexity does arise, people have a tendency to tune out and think, oh, it's just hopeless. There's nothing I can do. Um, and if, you know, if I can, you know, step out of my kind of journalistic role here for a moment and say, you know, the, the intent behind this is to show that there is still hope and the hope comes from dealing with it and going deep into it rather than simply hoping someone else is going to come around and, and fix it for you or that you'll be dead before it's a problem or, you know, any of these other attitudes that kind of prevail right now. Um, I'm kind of, what I'm trying to do is, is say, yes, it, things are dark right now. Um, it's kind of the shadow side of technology, but, um, 
but it's part of the package, you know, it's part of, it, and it's, and every technology has had that. And the, the, the key to mastering any technology is it is in acknowledging that dark side. Uh, otherwise it just sort of m ends up taking over. So I, my intent is to, is to explore that, um, that complexity. And I, I think, you know, you're, you're bringing up kind of an interesting point about diversity, right? And one of the, I, I think you're, I think you're kind of, I kind of agree with your, with your intuition on that with regards to, um, you know, the diversity question, right? There seems to be, just as much as there's a technological solutionism, there seems to be a sort of diversity solutionism uh, in the sense that uh, diversity plus anything makes everything better. Um, and to a degree, yes, sure. Um, but I feel like when that becomes a formula statement, both sides of the statement become superficial and the meaning of them gets kind of um, degraded. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and there seems to be this, this sort of attitude where, well, if we just, if we just throw different, different, you know, faces on there that we're not used to, then that makes it okay. But that's not the point because as we've seen in countless situations in recent events, that doesn't really solve the problem. Well, here's the thing. Capitalism will co-opt anything it possibly can. It is a voracious, hungry beast, <laughs> and it will find its way anywhere. Mm -hmm. And this is what I think we all really need to be paying attention to, yeah. is, is, is tech and capital, art, capital. I, I mean, um, it's, it's yeah. not that I'm, I'm a mm. full-out Marxist, but I've read my own uh, okay, fine. An okay amount. Okay, there's yeah. again, there's experts in every field. But what I am seeing more and more is that we have got to find means to exchange services and goods beyond the dollar. And this is what I think is happening with the future and with theater in yeah. particular. Um, when people are doing more immersive events or they're doing sliding scales or various ways for people to afford to see the theater or v different funding structures, different kinds of collaborative theater making, there people are needing to come up with solutions now because I, th I think that capitalism may indeed be, be breathing its last final breaths. And of course, and then I'll hear this 20 years from now and it's probably worse <laughs> than it ever has been. <laughs> But right, and, yeah. and again, I'm stuck in the system too. Sure. But I mean. But, but yeah, to to back up what you're saying, I mean, I I spoke earlier uh, in this series to Maggie Duvall, who um, has more or less seen the birthings of the, the web as we know it, mm -hmm. and her she she has a similar view. I mean, her her turning point. In, in her mind, in her, in her version of that history, was around 95, 96 when the suits came in, the, the you know, pleated khakis came in. Mm -hmm. and um, By the way, I was writing code in DOS when I was about 10, 11, because oh, my, my family, my dad, my uncles, I mean, I had my first computer when I was, you know, uh, around that time. And, oh, I, had and no I, idea. I learned how to just basically, and I coded, in, and, well, they used to teach basic in yeah. elementary school. Yeah. And um, so, and I was up, I was, I, I was on a Muds and Moos. I did a lot of that kind of stuff in the early 90s. Okay. So, anyway, but go ahead. Yes. Okay, well, so this is. So I understand yeah. where she's coming from. Yes. And, um, you know, the way she tells it is like these, these, guys came in who didn't really understand the technology mm -hmm. and they just sought to um, to immediately uh, turn a profit on it. Mm -hmm. There were more women involved too and once those dudes started coming in, the, the, the interesting trends, there used to be more programmers, uh, more women programmers as right. well. Um, well, yeah, I mean, we could, we could go down that as well. There's um, a whole uh, history of women involved in, uh, in computer science that yep. is not often spoken of. Yep. Uh, everyone from Ada Lovelace to um, uh, 
Um, sorry, I'm blanking. Well, Wasn't there a movie about? Well, yeah, the, it was uh, the the women who helped uh, at uh, the programmers. What is that at NASA? Yeah, 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 yeah. The Hidden Figures. Hidden that Figures, movie? Yeah. exactly. And um, yeah, this is that'll open up a whole other bit. But the point is, is that for sure, the if we're gonna if we're talking about the quote unquote web and the internet, it definitely has shifted in, in, in where it's almost entirely a commercial venture. And, and, and community, right. quote, again, community, a very charged word in and of itself. There used to be communities right. online, and that's how people well, I mean, find each other. Well, I mean, arguably, there, there is no way to profit uh, on the web aside from uh, surveillance. Well, data collection, data surveillance. Data collection, surveillance, um, yes. Well, right, or you make people go to sites that will provide the services and goods that they think would be more convenient, aka Amazon. And sure, but it becomes very difficult to 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 run that in a profitable way without collecting without, their without collecting their information. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing that I that I may, and maybe maybe underneath it all subconsciously, maybe that's why I was obsessed with the, the, all this privacy stuff because I remember when I could like use my avatar name. Log into um, a moo. I don't know if you know what a, a moo is. It's a, in a mud. They're a multi-user domain. It's all text-based. It's sort of like, and you program your own little world there. And okay. I was in like Lambda Moo world because I knew. I read anyway. Long this was story early nineties or how I got there. Well, I well I actually uh, no. I I started getting to that place in uh, oh geez. Like probably early two thousands, but it had been around a okay. lot longer than that. It came out of um, uh, uh, Xerox, oh, you know, so, uh, Silicon Valley um, location, and okay. and it was sort of um, this cool little meeting place where people would create tiny little text-based communities yeah. and um, there were, you know, rules of the land. But this, there is were not, wizards this is not the same as, as the, um, the, the boards that... Uh... No, it's not a BB... It's not a, a bulletin board. It's, it's not, not a BB... Okay. Mm -mm, and it's not the well... It, I mean, you should look them up, Muds and Moos. Okay. And they're still around. Like, you yeah. can still log into them as a guest or whatnot. And then um, uh, I got into it because I was reading about... <laughs> When I was uh, at NYU, and I was writing about digital cultures then, as per yeah. as per performative spaces, right? Yeah. So that was my fascination. Like you go into this digital world and you become performative. You take on yes. an avatar name. You dress yourself a certain way, right? Yeah. So I dressed myself as sort of like this cowgirl kind of witchy lady in 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 the yeah. Lambda Moo world, and, <laughs> and I sort of became the person I wish I could be. Right. You know, or men could be women, or vice versa and and you could interact with people in that way and uh, but it's all text based there's no pictures there's none of that you know you don't need you, you don't post your breakfast on the site and 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 you could create your own little home in those worlds yeah and and I got into it pretty deep for a while there I'm <laughs> I don't want to reveal too much but like things got there was some drama that happened yeah no need to no need to I'm not to gonna dive get into, into it, it. I mean, maybe that's the show that I want to do. But, like, <laughs> I don't talk very much to yeah. people in general about my experiences in digital and cyber cultures. Yeah. Mostly because I'm not a programmer. Right. I'm not, like, um, I never worked. Well, no, no, I did work in tech. I did, I did, uh, <laughs> I did tech support at Unisys um, oh, really? for a while. <laughs> but I've ne I don't, I'm a theater maker. Yeah. And I also feel like, the time that I've spent in those worlds are precious to me, and maybe it's because they're no longer there as much, mm -hmm. but I, it's part of my exploration in those digital worlds and environments yeah. that helped create the person I am today. Yes, well, so, that, so that's a, an important uh, piece that relates to how Snowden talks about privacy, which yes. is, he says that you need a space in which to freely explore who you are yeah. and who you want to be. Yeah. And um, that without that, you don't really get to develop a, a rich inner life, uh, don't really get to decide what you actually think or how you actually feel about certain things. And that it's important that that be a private space dedicated to that. Um, and I can relate to you, to, to that experience as well. I mean, personally, 
I, I grew up, uh, you know, my first experience with it was like AOL, mm -hmm. but I was about like 14, 15 at the mm -hmm. time. And, you know, for me, that was really important to, to uh, I was in a pretty oppressive culture and it gave me a lot of room to f explore other aspects of who I am and was ultimately a sort of uh, uh, liberating experience in that regard. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, without that experience, you know, my life probably would have turned out very differently. And, I, and so I can see it from that. But there, there does seem to be both that ex self-exploratory aspect and a um, sort of um, perf a performative aspect. Right, like those two things go heavily into how the web works and what it almost, almost arguably what its function is. Right. Now, one of the things that we need to remember about the days, the internet of course was formed, it was called, you know, a rap net, right? It right. was a military, intended for the military to communicate information. And there's a piece of that, I mean, maybe I just haven't come across any readings in, in, my, in my very busy life, <laughs> but around, you know, what happens when that militarized sort of mode of communication gets, when people start to use it? Right, and, and how it has... people didn't use it militaristically. Do you know what I mean? Yes, yes. Like it is not our impulse to use this kind of tech. No, it's in in a means. It, it that... almost kind of retains some of those biases in a weird way. It's very interesting to me how I think maybe there's a study somewhere. Now I'm fascinated, but like you put a new tool in the hands of human beings, what is it that they really initial? What is the first impulse? To, when they use that. And it, is it about self-discovery? Is it about getting to know the person that you're <laughs> too scared to talk to because of whatever bias or, I don't know, personality trait that makes you just timid? You know, the internet provides a, a little bit, this is the very idealistic perspective of the yeah, internet, yeah. but it provided a safe space. Again, highly charged phrasing, but it provided a place where in an impress oppressive environment, or in the case of me, I was just bored and lonely as an only child and was, I felt like I, I, I liked computers and I yeah. liked tech and like yeah. nobody in my immediate <laughs> family other than yeah. my father who lived far away, like appreciated that. And so I just did what I wanted to do and learned a lot on my own. Right. And being able to choose the kind of research that you want to research, being able to, um, you know, again, like as Snowden was saying, being able to talk to somebody in New Zealand um, when you're living in Kansas and you both have similar interests in this obscure thing. Right. To find that kind of connection is, right. yeah, it's powerful and it's, and it's, and it's, and it validates one's sense of self. Sure. You know, that you don't feel like you're just the only weirdo that's into, you know, 19th century vase blowing techniques right. or something. No, absolutely. <laughs> but it, and then at the end of the day, though, it does seem like um, as good as all those things are, they can be... There are there are underbelly there there are dark sides. There to always it, is. Right? Okay, so there's this great book called The End of Absence um, that was uh, that I read in sort of my research for privacy settings around when when the the the, the printed page started happening when the Gutenberg Bible was being it was frightening. Yeah, there was this yeah. deep fear that we would lose storytelling that that people would become dumbed down by having all of the words of God written on a page. Yeah, well, rather than it being yeah. sort of like like translated to them from one sort of knowing godly person yeah. to a, I mean that a, that that's from the beginning of of the written word, right? That's right. Uh, there's that there's that myth of uh was it Thoth, the Egyptian 
oh, creator yes. of the of, uh, of the written language, mm -hmm. presenting his creation to the pharaoh. I believe this is right. I hope I hope this is right. Uh, but well, basically, you can delete I, it later. yeah. I mean, basically, <laughs> the idea was that he presents writing to the pharaoh, and, the, and he's like, "Aren't you, you know, is, pharaoh? Don't you think this is amazing? Now, now, you know, nobody will have to forget it. No one will forget anything. It's like you fool. Like they'll forget everything now. That's right. Well, because they won't retain they, it. They won't retain anything. Well, remember, like Odysseus. It. You know, this, these stories were memorized. Right. Hours upon hours upon hours. Internalized. Internalized, and then the, yeah. memorized, and then passed down well, generation after generation. Poets were like the rock stars poets of that were day. The they would stars. go, yep. if you want to have a fun party, you would invite a poet over. A poet would come over, tell stories. And That's right. Tell, tell epic uh, tales. And, and, this, and, and this is a whole line of like sort of theater history. We'll yeah. go back to sort of this, there's lots of origin theories of why theater. Why? Yeah. Because this seems to be, uh, theater seems to be, <laughs> all evidence suggests yeah. it's been around yeah. since pretty much human beings started living together in community. Yeah. You know, whether it's a shaman doing, you know, uh, donning animal sure, uh, masks yeah, that's, yeah. and becoming the wolf or the whale or... Well, I mean, it's, it's I think, a big argument if I'm not mistaken, is that theater derives from that religious practice, or it may, perhaps it's argument. intertwined? Yeah, it is. A, there are multiple. Again, you know, scholars like to argue. I don't want to argue and with the scholar here. No, 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 no. I'm not the, <laughs> the scholar. I'm saying that like there are lots of really neat interweaving yeah. theories about the origins of theater, and um, you know, my my thing is like it all is in some capacity, right. but um, the. I yes, part of my own research was this fascination with um, with shamans connecting to some other force and yeah. being in possession or yeah. being uh, in an altered state, so that they it so that they could translate information from whatever their divine source, whatever their cosmology told them, <laughs> or whatever they believed, how they could then talk to the people. Or talk yeah. to a person right. and give them advice or problem solving or healing. Again, it goes for me. It touches back into healing. Uh -huh. It always, I always go back to this healing aspect. Interesting, yeah. And and which is well, why I think because we you were saying ever. that with with the privacy settings, there was this healing of a sort of fear that was going on. Right. I, there is there's a Buddhist phrase around you know when you're working with a guru. Um, and you're, you're, you know, you're deep in your study and stuff. And sometimes there's times in which the guru acts like a surgeon to yeah. help remove some of your, in this case, it would be maybe ego driven something, desires, yeah, yeah. whatever. And it kind of hurts. Right. The surgeon cuts. Yeah. Not to maim you. Right. But to remove the toxicity. That's interesting. So that you can heal. Uh, and the cut, the scar might be there, but you'll be stronger for it. Yeah. You know? So this is going in an interesting direction. I want to just try it. Um, so we've talked about the theatricality of web interactions, in a sense. Um, and we've talked about how um, theater is is managing to communicate these digital issues in an interesting way. And while you were speaking just now, talking about you know how these weapons can either cut or or heal like a surgeon's blade, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it makes me think of the alt right. You know, how how this has sort of evolved on the on the on the web. But it's sort of like an unethical use of it, right? It's sort of like using it to, to maim, using it to hurt, instead of using it for, for, for that kind of deep surgical kind of healing modality that's possible. So it makes me wonder, is there perhaps a like some sort of ethics of theatricality that can, can um, translate to, to web culture in some sort of way and this is just purely a speculative, explorative 
question. I don't expect you to have this thought through. Um, but can can this somehow uh, bridge this? Is there so, is there some sort of thinking that perhaps we could do with this regard and making these kinds of correlations to uh, better navigate these technologies and what they do to us? Um, well, I'm not going to give you an enlightened answer to this mm -hmm. because I have, I am not enlightened by any <laughs> means. So I personally will say that number one, find the compassion first and then get rid of the poison. Huh. <laughs> and, 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 um, you know, there's the other myth around peacocks, and um, peacocks actually, in um, several cultural myths, are able to consume poison and hmm. and transmute it oh, to medicine. That's right. And um, so I have found Pema Chodron <laughs> says this in one of her books. Uh -huh. It might be from um, When Things Fall Apart. It could be in Start Where You Are. There's a lot of great Pema Chodron books, but um, the idea that that you can, if, if one can find a means to swallow this poison and transmute it in a way that it, it um, can be healing or transformative, that's the trick right now. That's what we need to be working towards. Yeah. Mm. It's exhausting, mm -hmm. by the way. Yeah. It's exhausting. It's the same thing with the whole Me Too thing. <laughs> it's exhausting. Yeah. But that's why we gotta have the arts. We gotta have our own, like you know, daily practice, our own self-care procedures. And because if we don't, we're gonna get depressed. We're gonna get sad. We're gonna get angry. And again, I'm speaking from a very, very, very privileged perspective. Yes. Right. There are a lot of things I have that a lot of people don't have. There are a lot of opportunities I've been given that others may not have been given. Yeah. And, um, you know, and I've worked very hard to get where I am, but I know damn well that there are a lot of things in place that got me where I am. And um, so again, part of that is also recognizing my own hypocrisy. Sure. And not, and being okay when somebody calls me out on my own bullshit. Yes. And, um, and There's I think, a sort of modesty in that. Well, well, I, I don't know. I mean, because because then that could that could almost seem like narcissistic too. Sure. Oh, I'm really nobody, but please do talk about it. Like, there's that whole <laughs> yeah, weird yeah. thing. I'm just saying that I'm really just a human being trying to do my best to um, help people yes. as best I can. And for but there's me, but that's there's an acceptance. There's an acceptance of of the human frailty of the the, the darkness. So we all bleed. We, all, we bleed. all bleed. We will all die, you know. Even mm -hmm. those alt right people, and I feel like ninety nine percent of the world's problems right now are because people don't know how to communicate, or don't want to communicate, or are afraid mm. to communicate, because it creates a vulnerable place to speak one's heart and mind. Mm. And I think that this whole phenomena of podcasts that's been going on <laughs> for several years yeah. is perhaps touching upon this need to, we don't have conversations anymore, right? But now we have to use technology just to have this conversation. <laughs> Why couldn't we have this conversation over coffee with well, not it being recorded? Do you know what I mean? I know what you mean, and, and it's exactly why I decided to do this in the this first place is because we do, I do have these conversations all the time uh -huh. and I did see that it wasn't happening in the public sphere and uh -huh. that this was a way to bring it into the public sphere. Right. Uh, so you, you were right aligned with that. Absolutely. Any last words, Just please? Just go see theater. Just go. Community theater. And if you're in Austin, come to the Vortex. And if you're in Austin, come to the Vortex. But just... I mean, there's a Google out there, or DuckDuckGo, um, <laughs> and you can research and find your local theater or some live yeah. performative event because people have put their heart and soul in that thing. Absolutely. And see, now I'm, I know I'm getting all choked up about it. <laughs> it's just really important yeah. that we support artists who are doing their damnedest to, to communicate something that means so much to them to the strangers in their yeah. community. 
and it is very precious and um, I don't think your cell phone is going to take it away. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dr. Heather Barfield, thank you for uh, this wonderful communication. Thank you. This great uh, conversation. Uh, I hope we'll do it again sometime. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and I'll do it for this interview. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on this trip through the shadow of the valley. If you'd like to learn more about Heather or the Vortex Theater, please visit heatherbarfield.com or vortexrep.org. Our theme music was generously provided by Bly, spelled B-I-E-L-E. -E. You can find her at SoundCloud and sarahbly.com. That's Sarah with an H, B-L-Y, dot com. Additional music was provided by Michael Garfield, host of Future Fossils podcast. You can also find him on Patreon and Bandcamp at michaelgarfield.bandcamp.com. That'll do it for this episode. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. And share it with any friends or family you think may enjoy them. I've been your host, Tal Leeds, saying, keep going.